Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagra Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the Treasury Department begins to take extraordinary measures to delay an American debt default until June, House leaders say they won't raise the spending limit unless the White House agrees to cut government spending, including to defense. The administration's answer is that it won't negotiate and demands a clean borrowing increase. As Russia continues to terrorize Ukrainian civilians and claw back territory, Kiev has asked America whether it will keep supporting Ukraine as NATO nations convene in Germany today uh, to clear another massive package of weapons to help the country retake as much of its territory from Moscow's grip as possible, including Crimea. Washington is proposing the sale of 40 F-16 fighters to Turkey, seen as a move to mollify Ankara and garner its support for Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO. China's charm offensive appears to be paying off, with Australia agreeing to restart trade ties with Beijing. In Israel, Bibi Netanyahu and his supporters want to strip authority from the country's Supreme Court, and the Iran nuclear deal is now well and truly dead. As tensions in the Caucasus soar, uh, as Russia declines to open access uh, to the Armenian enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, that's been blockaded by so-called Azeri environmental activists starving uh, the local population and setting the stage for another clash uh, as Baku and its allies have been planning for months. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top aerospace and defense lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, a must for anybody interested in the Transatlantic Alliance, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back. Uh, great to have you on the program. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsor our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air warfare coverage. And check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus and our producer, Chris Cervello, sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace and co-hosted by our contributing editor, JJ Gertler and yours truly. Uh, Michael, uh, for months, uh, we have been warning that we could end up with uh, a debt default and defense could end up being a hostage. Uh, while we were taping uh, last week, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet, Janet Yellen uh, said that we would hit the borrowing limit by yesterday, and uh, but that through extraordinary measures, uh, we can postpone a default until June. Uh, the House wants spending cuts. Uh, the White House says it will not negotiate with terrorists <laughs> effectively, not to be funny about this. Where are we heading? Because this is an iceberg that we've been approaching for some time now. Yeah, we have. Like we, we've been talking about this since last year, and I think we were all hopeful that the Democrats would have uh, alleviated, us, uh, alleviated us of this burden by passing and raising the debt ceiling last year, but they, they did not. Um, so, you know, as you mentioned, we hit the debt ceiling yesterday. Uh, the Treasury Department's using extraordinary measures, which will carry us until early June. So we've really got about four and a half months. And, you know, this whole debate is really you know, revealing the, the hypocrisy of this new breed of Republican, uh, you know, that one, 
uh, you know, will say for two years that the Biden defense budget is woefully inadequate and doesn't keep pace in inflation. And now this year talks about cutting defense spending um, and at the same time uh, refuses to recognize the fact that uh, they raised the debt ceiling three times during the Trump administration without a peep. And during the uh, four years of the Trump presidency, we added almost eight trillion dollars. Uh, to the debt. But, you know, McCarthy has, has warned, you know, that they will not pass a debt limit increase without uh, structural changes uh, to federal spending. Uh, so, and, you know, as, as we've seen too, from the, the fight for the speakership, the rebels are really, you know, in the driver's seat and there's a lot of concern on the hill and off the hill. That there's probably never been a greater chance uh, of U.S. default than we've had uh, today. And you also see this new populist culture uh, in with the House Republicans that's less beholden to the business establishment. I mean, they're at war with the Chamber of Commerce, uh, which really weakens their voice about the dangers of playing with the country's uh, credit. So there's really seven different possible scenarios here and how this could play out, right? So uh, I'll start with the least likely, you know, down to the most likely. So I think the, the first one uh, really is a plan that, that's already been floated uh, by House Republicans, which would call on the Biden administration just to make the most critical payments, you know, make right. payments on Social Security, Medicare, veterans benefits uh, and, and the military. But, you know, it would leave out, you know, payments on things like Medicaid, you know, food safety inspections, border control, uh, air traffic control. And, and this was raised as an option when this fight came up during the Obama administration. And the Treasury Department has made it clear that this is just untenable uh, because of the complexity of the millions uh, of payments that the federal government uh, makes each day. Uh, so, you know, another option is, you know, McCarthy just gives in, but I think that that's unlikely as well because the Freedom Caucus will hold over his head, you know, the motion to vacate. Uh, same with Biden, you know, just giving in. Uh, I think he's made clear that he's uh, but not going to negotiate. Uh, but, you know, again, we still have, uh, you know, four and a half months uh, to go. Uh, then there's another option been floated uh, having the Federal Reserve uh, uh, mint a coin that would be worth a trillion dollars, and that coin would then be deposited at the Federal Reserve, circumventing Congress's uh, borrowing limit. But Secretary Yellen has dismissed this as a loophole and a gimmick, so that doesn't seem to be uh, a viable option. Then there's another option that has emerged. Uh, so even though the White House has said they won't negotiate, Senator Manchin uh, has popped up saying that he will negotiate. And in fact, he even spoke to McCarthy about a bill that he and Mitt Romney introduced in the last Congress to create a rescue committee uh, for endangered government funds, including Medicare, Social Security, uh, even the highway trust funds. And this would create uh, a super committee, uh, for lack of a better word, where the top four leaders in Congress would appoint members to this rescue committee and give them 180 days to come up with a solution uh, for solvency uh, to get us. Uh, and then okay, fast we, we've, seen, we've seen this play before, though. Exactly. Right. You're, you, you took the words out of my mouth. You've seen this play before. We had a super committee back in 2011 and it failed and we ended up with the Budget Control Act. So I don't see that really as a tenable option either. Uh, now, another option is uh, the U.S. defaults. Uh, you have a lot of folks in Congress who don't understand what a default is. They think it's a government shutdown. Uh, they want to see what happens. They don't think it's going to be as bad as people think. Uh, although every, every major economist says the U.S. economy, you know, it will cost our economy up to 6 million jobs, uh, as much as 15 trillion in household wealth could be wiped out. The unemployment rate could go up to almost 10%. Um, so uh, then I think what the, the likely outcome is right now, and look, we still have four and a half months to go, right? But that would be a discharge petition. Right. Right. And that's something that really has not been used successfully in, in, in since 2015. So in eight years, it has been used successfully. And so it's it what, what the way its discharge position works is after a bill has been introduced and referred to committee and it's been there for at least 30 days, 
a member of the House then can file a motion to have the bill discharged for consideration uh, by the committee. In order to do this, though, a majority of the House meets needs 218 voting members need to sign the petition. And once the petition reaches that 218, uh, then there's seven legislative days, which the House has to consider the motion to discharge the legislation. There's debate. And then if the vote passes, the House would take up the measure. Now, there's only 212 Democrats, so that would require six Republicans, provided all the Democrats sign the discharge petition in right. order to get that done. That would, now, those six moderate Republicans who would sign that discharge petition also would be putting their careers on the line because if they do, they're most likely to get primaries uh, and have to fight for their political survival uh, you know, two years from now. So um, look, I, I've been on the Hill a bunch this week, even though uh, Congress is out of session, a lot of congressmen are in town because the steering committee has been meeting, putting people on committees. Uh, I, can, I have not talked to a single congressman or single staffer that can tell me how we're going to get out of this mess. Uh, but they all think it's going to be OK, but they can't tell us how it's going to be OK. I, I want to um, get uh, go around the horn and get everybody's take on what this means and how Europe is perceiving it and the Pacific is per- perceiving it, uh, moves that the Pentagon is doing. Uh, right. I mean, all government departments are going to have to play their role in order to be able to make the money kind of last as long as possible. But really quickly on oversight committees, uh, really some controversial members, um, uh, you know, on some of these oversight committees, really very briefly. What is what what, what do these assignments ultimately uh, mean in, in the in the real political world? Uh, assignments on the, on the committees are progressing. The Republicans are pretty much done with theirs, but Democrats won't do theirs until next week. Um, so as we've talked in the past, there were 11 openings on the House Armed Services Committee. So 11 new members have gotten on the committee. Uh, and for the most part, it's a very strong uh, list of folks. And, and several members got on the Armed Services Committee uh, who have been serving in Congress for several years, like Nancy Mace uh, from South Carolina and Carlos uh, Jimenez from Florida. Uh, but the rest are freshman members like Nick Lota from New York, uh, Rich McCormick from Georgia, Jen Kiggins, who beat Elaine Loria uh, from Virginia, uh, Brad Finstad from Minnesota, uh, Morgan Luttrell, who's a former Navy SEAL from Texas, uh, Mark Alford from uh, Missouri, who took the Vicki Hartzler seat, uh, Dale Strong from Alabama, who took the Mo Brooks seat, uh, Corey Mills uh, from Florida, and they also put the delegate from Guam, uh, James Moylan, on the committee as well. Um, so, I mean, that, the, the one that's really making more news is the Government Reform and Oversight Committee uh, has, you know, also staffed up, and their members are, you know, quite a cast of characters. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobart, uh, Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, and Jim Jordan, just to name a few, uh, which will make those hearings for very interesting must-see TV. And, in fact, it's really made the Biden administration uh, pretty happy because they know that they can kind of show that that committee is unhinged and a lot of the investigations are unhinged. And, and also point out, again, a lot of the hypocrisy among those members, because a lot of those members, you know, supported the overturning of the election and, you know, the January 6th insurrection. And you have folks like uh, Paul Gosar who are in bed with you know, white supremacists like Nick Fuente. So it's definitely going to be quite a circus to watch over the next two years. I, I fear uh, that you're going to be right. Uh, yeah. Dove, uh, what are some of the budget mechanisms that Mike McCord, his team and Secretary Austin and the services uh, are going to be executing over the next couple of months, uh, do you think, right? I mean, even though the administration says that it's not going to negotiate uh, at the same time, uh, they're going to help the Treasury Secretary try to stretch out whatever available funding we have. Obviously, a lot of that is in Treasury's hands, uh, but the rest of it kind of goes across uh, government. What, what do you think the mindset's going to be? What are some of the ways as somebody who's sat in that chair in the past, uh, you can stretch out every dollar the department spends? Okay, before I do that, I want to make one comment on what Mike said uh, with regard to the discharge petition. 
um, there may well be more than just a few moderates who will go with that. And the reason I say that uh, is if you look at today's New York Times huge article by Peter King, a former Republican congressman who'd been around for a long time, congressman from Long Island, who was going after George Santos and pointed out that, in fact, uh, the, the pretty much the entire Republican uh, rep delegation from New York is vulnerable because of Santos. And they're going to be vulnerable, additionally vulnerable, if they are seen to be part of uh, an effort to essentially blow up the nation's economy. And so I think those guys uh, and several other men and women who are in uh, districts that are really up for grabs are not going to make themselves more vulnerable, especially in light of what Mike just said about what this oversight committee is going to do and the circus that it's going to produce. Uh, on the question of, of uh, what to do about the money, um, you may recall Bob Hale, who I'll admit is my close friend, but also happens to have been effective uh, comptroller, certainly in my, during my professional career, um, his deputy was Mike McCord, who is now in his second go-round as comptroller. So Mike McCord was there when Bob Hale was managing uh, the sequester problem and what to do about money when you didn't have it. And what they did was, first of all, obviously preserve personnel, make sure nobody got fired. Uh, but second of all, there are vehicles for essentially moving, the, slowing the spending down. This, this happens every year during the execution review where you move money around from slow moving programs to fast moving programs. And what you could do here is simply not move the money around into a fast moving program, but hold the slow moving programs as slow as they are today. Uh, again, once you've gotten past oper uh, personnel, your next super concern is operations. We've already got all kinds of problems with readiness today. And the last thing you want to do is cut back on it. Now, they're going to cut back on training. They did that before. But by and large, they want to preserve readiness. And so what's going to get hit is any slow-moving R&D project, any slow-moving procurement project. And just as Bob Hill kept the Pentagon afloat, I think Mike McCord will do the same. Uh, it is uh, going to be a monumental job. And uh, he and I had a terrific conversation at the, uh, at, uh, the Reagan uh, Forum late last year. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a treat. Uh, Jim and Patrick, let me bring you guys uh, into this in terms of how this is playing around the world. Jim, uh, you know, you uh, two were sitting uh, as the Pentagon Europe, uh, as the Pentagon's Europe chief, uh, and having to interface with allies and partners who literally were saying WTF. Uh, uh, you know, and asking you, please explain this insanity to us. Uh, Patrick, this isn't going over any better over in the Pacific, um, uh, really, either. Uh, walk us through how all of this is being perceived by our allies uh, and partners. Well, if I could yeah, just jump in and, and just add on to what Dub was saying, um, you know, when we were going through sequestration, I was, as you know, the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Europe and NATO. But that sequestration hit me uh, also in terms of the geopolitical side, because in 2014, when the Russians went into Crimea, um, I and a, a handful, uh, unfortunately, and a handful of uh, 
activists were trying to rebuild uh, very quickly U.S. force structure in Europe. Uh, and I was hampered by that because I couldn't get the services uh, to move very quickly, not only because they were dealing with the costs associated with sequestration, which, which was a bow wave they were still dealing with in 2014, um, but uh, they, you know, they, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't bear the costs of not just putting forces back in, but they had to continue to take them out of Europe. Uh, they looked at me and said, Jim, we can't afford to have these guys there. We're, and so as we were on the one hand watching the headlines of Russians going into Crimea, on the other hand, I was sitting in meetings as uh, another part of the Pentagon was trying to pull U.S. force structure out of Europe. Uh, and as I went to the planners and to strategists and OSD policy and said, hey, you know, the Russians are on the march. They looked at me like, well, that's too bad. We're in the middle of trying to deal with sequestration. Last story on this, just to illustrate what can happen. I went to the, uh, the vice chairman, I'm uh, the vice CNO, the vice chief of naval operations. And I said, is there any way we can get some US naval ships into the Baltic just to show the flag? This is 2014, just to show the flag. And she looked at me and said, Jim, we are so backed up because of the maintenance that we couldn't do because of sequestration. She says, I don't have enough ships right now. Maybe in two years, I could spare something to go over there and show the flag. But right now we're all tied up and trying to deal with uh, our readiness problems coming out of sequestration. So I, I just, uh, I, I fear for that because it will impact what I watch, which is US force posture in Europe and our, our relations with NATO, et cetera. But to get to your specific question, um, you know, there's not many allies who can follow, there's not many Americans who can follow the ins and outs of what's happening right now in terms of the, the debt ceiling, et cetera. But so from Europe, from European capitals, uh, as, as they look at what's happening in Washington, they, they know this is the continuation of the chaos that we have seen uh, and that we saw you know, back in the day uh, with sequestration and all with the Budget Control Act. They're seeing this kind of thing again. And as we talked about last weekend, and uh, well, last week and the, weekend, the week before, this is just a, another uh, way for the allies to begin to feel that maybe they need to hedge uh, about the U.S. Uh, where is the U.S. going? Uh, is the Biden return to normalcy just a blip and actually they're on a trajectory? Uh, that's not going to be one that's going to be the, the close uh, transatlantic relationship that we've grown used to. Not necessarily that it's become Trumpian, but it's just that it's the U.S. is having a hard time trying to, trying to deal with its internal politics, and this is going to last a long time. So, I mean, it's that kind of message, which is which uh, the, the, the allies are beginning to pick up. And you know that Putin is picking up on that as well. And right. that probably gives him great courage uh, to hang in there himself because he can see the U.S. beginning to, uh, to go wobbly. Uh, when, when there's just so much going on, uh, you know, uh, it, having this kind of a distraction is uh, is is almost uh, criminal uh, in its in its nature. Patrick, how is this going over uh, in the uh, Asia Pacific, where we're trying to uh, assert greater leadership, uh, reassure our allies and partners? Well, our power and credibility are finite, and if this drags on for half of the year or more, uh, our credibility uh, will will continue to decline. Uh, just in the year when we're supposed to be affecting the biggest posture change in decades. Uh, we're supposed to be really following through on this rebalance to Asia Pacific when we've asked Japan, Korea, Australia and other allies and partners to pay much more of the security costs. 
all of these are going to rankle uh, domestic populations saying, well, look, the Americans aren't following through. Uh, so, yeah, as Jim talks about hedging, hedging, but also uh, some anger. And I think when you think about the extended deterrence crisis, maybe too strong a word, but debate that's going on between the U.S. and South Korea right now, those kind of debates are going to grow over time if we cannot follow through. Now, I'm a little more optimistic. I'm, I'm hopeful when I hear people like Senator McConnell saying we will not default on the debt, but we certainly are going to impose a cost on us regardless. So we're going to we're not going to default on the debt, and yet we're still going to look like we lack credibility and and look we look like we're inept, and that that imposes a cost. Um, I should point out to the audience, we were had a credit downgrade and we remain uh, downgraded from the last time. So, you know, this uh, can leave uh, a, a lasting mark, uh, although I find it fascinating, even how some rep uh, responsible folks, uh, you know, make the argument that, look, uh, you know, d defense spending should be defended even at the risk of a debt default. Just do it uh, and it won't be that bad. And it just sort of underlies if you know anything about capital markets. Uh, and global economics, how problematic that line of thinking is, uh, because this is sort of in economic terms, sort of an unmodelable catastrophe uh, that the markets wrestled with last time around. A lot of uh, our friends overseas, our allies, our partners uh, were worried and expressed worry that uh, the Trump mentality would return after Mr. Biden. This debt crisis is going to reinforce that worry. Uh, in, indeed. Well, well, well said, uh, Dove. Uh, Jim, I want to uh, go to you and talk about uh, Ukraine. We've got a lot of other uh, topics uh, to get to as well, uh, certainly in the Asia, Asia Pacific. But what I wanted to get your sense on is, uh, as we've discussed many times on this program, there was uh, a lot of concern uh, with uh, the new Republican House. Uh, and American support for Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians asked uh, and received, uh, CIA Director uh, Burns uh, went over there uh, to reassure uh, Kiev and said, look, the United States will do all that it can. Washington warming up to the notion of Ukraine uh, retaking Crimea that we regarded for a while as a red line. Uh, United States putting an enormous amount of pressure on Germany, uh, which is still balking. Uh, obviously, a new German uh, defense minister now, uh, uh, Boris Pistorius, uh, coming in. Uh, you know, uh, seeing as how the his uh, you know his predecessor, you know, she was seen as ineffective, um, and now potentially a very big new arms package. What what has changed uh, in the last couple of months uh, that are driving? I mean, is it the Ukrainian warnings uh, and what we heard from? Uh, of Vladimir Zelensky speaking to Congress last year that it's like, hey, this is a very close run thing and we really need some heavy weapons here if, if we're going to succeed in this. And, and the Russians have been you know, making gains, losing a lot of people, but making some gains. Well, I mean, it's a great question. And I and, I, you know, I, I certainly can't don't have the answer for you. But uh, but what I what I think as I as I look at the kind of equipment that we're providing them, and what I'm hearing on, on the street, at least, is I think that probably the administration has got some pretty good intelligence that the Russians are going to mount an offensive uh, with more in terms of critical mass, in terms of, of people, uh, probably in terms of ammunition and in terms of armor and this type of thing, that, it, that they are not at, not they're down, but they're not out. And we've been saying that. Uh, but in fact, um, that the uh, we must have the intelligence that there's going to be a, a Russian offensive, maybe involving coming in from Belarus as well as in the south, uh, to the point where there's a there's a finally an understanding within the administration 
that um, time is not on our side here and that uh, we need if 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 um, if we're going to you know make sure it's the Russians that are on the on their back foot and not the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are going to need to start an offensive. They, they don't have time to wait. Uh, and so this last package with Stryker in it, uh, the providing the challenger out of the UK, the AMX is out of Paris. I, there seems to be an understanding that uh, that Ukraine needs to, to make a big push and soon, or they're going to be they're going to be on their back foot uh, because the Russians are going to be moving at them from different directions, and we've got to you know steal the march on the Russians. That's why these tanks are so important. I was really disappointed to uh, to hear that the Germans still have not been able to at least give approval for other countries to provide the Leopard two. My fear is that by the time we get around to actually providing delivering tanks, it'll be too late for an offensive this spring, and I'm just. I'm, I'm just hoping that the U.S. is twisting some arms. Uh, I mean, we can't let things hang on the Abrams. It's got to be the uh, the leopards. They've got to get there. They really, the Ukraine really needs to have an offensive start as soon as we can. We don't have time to dither on these tanks. Uh, and uh, right, I mean, I should point out the leopard uh, diesel propelled something uh, more familiar, the U.S. Uh, M1 tank gas turbine propelled. Uh, tremendous vehicle, but you need the kind of support structure the United States has for that. Uh, then much harder to service in the field, uh, much easier to service a diesel uh, in the field. Patrick, um, I want to uh, go to you and uh, to Dove uh, and the Israelis uh, are looking at the drawdown uh, in uh, stocks. Maybe um, let's uh, actually start with Dove on this because it's this is a somewhat more controversial uh, decision. The United States trying to satisfy uh, Ukraine's voracious need for ammunition. We have enormous stockpiles that are stockpiled in Israel. Uh, Israel, unlike South Korea, has been very reticent to get involved in this uh, conflict uh, and because it wants good relations with Moscow for a whole variety of reasons. Syria is only one of them, maybe helping R Russia curtail air defense or get insights into systems it may be shipping to Iranians and, and others. Walk us through how this is being perceived when the United States turns to Israel and says, hey, I'm grabbing a lot of those prepositioned uh, stocks. And, and there are vast mountains of American equipment that reside in Israel. Uh, uh, have been parked there over the decades. And then, Patrick, your sense on how this is seen by Koreans, which may be seen a little bit differently given how Hanwha and Korean industry really have stepped up to satisfy Europe's armament uh, needs, whether through artillery shells, guns, uh, and other uh, capabilities. Dove, uh, start us off, and then Patrick. Well, it depends on perceived by whom. Let's start with uh, the Israelis. The Israelis uh, as you rightly said, have walked a very fine line between uh, Russia and Ukraine, supplying Ukraine with some defensive web, uh, capabilities, but really trying to ensure that uh, Mr. Putin doesn't get angry at Israel because of the uh, Israeli-Russian understanding over how Israel can attack uh, Iranian targets in Syria. Uh, the problem is that, uh, strictly speaking, the stockpiles can be moved out. Uh, and Jake Sullivan was just in Israel. He had uh, private talks with uh, everybody who's in the leadership, but especially Prime Minister Netanyahu. And, you know, the, the relationship between the United States and Israel right now is pretty brittle, given this crazy right wing government that uh, could prompt an intifada, uh, could blow up the Middle East at a time when the United States needs to focus on China and Russia. Uh, and so uh, Israelis might be annoyed at what the United States is doing. Uh, it is within its rights to do it. 
But more important, uh, I think uh, the Israelis uh, have to come to understand that uh, they cannot expect uh, a blank check from the United States at a time when uh, our priorities are somewhat different and their priorities, uh, domestic priorities, are uh, causing headaches in the White House and the administration. So, yes, the Israelis are annoyed, um, but it's clearly not going to change what we're doing. Uh, but more important, and maybe a message to the uh, to the government uh, over in Jerusalem that uh, they really need to be very careful because this could only be the first of several things the United States does that to some marginal extent uh, distances the uh, White House from uh, the government over there. Uh, because of their uh, of the nature of that government and the things they're saying and doing. Patrick, from a Korean perspective, how is it going over when the U.S. is drawing uh, down supplies at a time when Seoul is uh, concerned and, and North Korea is becoming uh, steadily more muscular? We can continue to await nuclear tests. Uh, how is this going over in Seoul? Well, fortunately, the U.S. and Korea are focused more on strategic assets, uh, including uh, even dual-capable aircraft. Uh, that's sort of at the center of the quiet discussions on extended deterrence. Um, so drawing down 155-millimeter howitzers uh, in U.S. Uh, forces Korea stockpile is a short-term uh, extraction that can be made without much uh, problem. In terms of deterrence, you know, North Korea is deterred. We're mostly trying to stop them from coercive blackmail. Um, and that's not going to, you know, uh, change because of the howitzer uh, diversion to Ukraine. There's a larger question, though, about American diversion uh, in general from Asia, uh, from uh, thinking about uh, the big powers, Russia and China, and not thinking about North Korea. Um, and there are also issues about um, you know, uh, how unilaterally this is done. Is is there the faith that South Korea has a full voice in this alliance? And that that is an issue that we'll, we'll see play out this year. I think on the bigger picture, though, South Korea is a global pivotal state, says President Yoon. He just was in the UAE uh, where he picked up $30 billion of investment, but he's, he's, he's moving South Korea as a major arms dealer in the world. There's no doubt, as well as in nuclear energy and technology. Um, interestingly, he was criticized heavily for having spoken truth, basically saying uh, Iran is the is the enemy of the UAE, just as North Korea is our enemy. Uh, he's taking a, a, a you know a lot of flack for that back home and in the region, um, but it's not untrue. I think uh, the you know I think on uh, arms to Ukraine um, again, if America gets distracted in a big European war over time, if that grows. That's a bigger issue, but that's not what we're seeing right now. We're just seeing trying to maintain Ukraine's defense against Russia's onslaught. And I think South Korea approves of that, and they want to do this indirectly without directly prodding uh, Russia. And this actually helps them uh, sort of walk that tightrope. A very uh, uh, tightrope, uh, indeed. Uh, Jim, I want to uh, quickly go, uh, you know, we, there, there's a lot to discuss, obviously, in the Indo-Pacific, but um, we want to get your sense uh, and maybe, Dove, if you want to weigh in on this as well. And, and Michael, if you do uh, as well. Uh, Washington is still committed to getting Sweden and Finland uh, into NATO. Turkey has been resisting. Um, Washington is willing to send more F-16s to Turkey. Uh, at the same time, that notification was made. F-35s to Greece uh, was in it. I'm not necessarily sure I'd have timed it that way. Uh, but, but that's uh, how it went down. What's it going to take to secure Turkey's accession to two countries uh, that have been waiting for a year. The United States Congress overwhelmingly approved, uh, the Senate overwhelmingly approved uh, the membership. Um, 
Other nations are 100% for it. We have not yet heard from Hungary, which might be another shoe that's uh, going to drop. Um, what's it going to take to get them to finally become NATO members? Uh, because I think that part of Ankara's goal is also perhaps to split the two countries, uh, right? Allow Finland to move ahead, and then maybe it manages to block Sweden. How how does this all play out, and what's the United States willing and able to do in order to try to make this happen? Let's go around the horn real quick on this. Uh, well, just quickly, I, I don't think Finland will allow to be split off from Sweden. They're going to go in together. They're not going to go in uh, piecemeal like that. That's the first thing. Second thing, I think it's it's the election uh, cycle that. Uh, Erdogan is in. That's that's the big driver is that. And I don't think we're going to see any movement until uh, he's confident either that he's, uh, you know, past the danger zone, whatever that may be for him in terms of his election or until the actual election takes place. And then maybe he's going to ease up. But that's that's uh, I think the, the big thing. The second thing I do think, too, is this F-16 package. I think Erdogan definitely wants to get something out of the United States. He's he's extorting the Swedes particularly. Now he's going to try to extort us. Um, but the thing about, you know, Washington on the F-16s, uh, while the administration is probably holding its nose and saying, OK, we'll go to the Congress and we'll try to push this through. Congress is, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert like Michael here, but I can tell you my dealings with Congress on Turkey for years and years and years and particularly now is, is very bad. And so that's going to be a tough negotiation to get uh, the Congress to uh, agree to pay this ransom, if you will, of the F-16s uh, to the Turks. So I think uh, if, if, if that F-16 is tied tightly to uh, bringing in Sweden and Finland as far as the Turks are concerned, then this is, this is going to be a real tangle, entanglement. Uh, but, but I don't see this drama ending until at a minimum uh, the election is over in Ankara. Of uh, your take and, and Michael, um, you know, I mean, Congress is in a very hostage taking mood, but I'm not sure if it wants to be taken hostage. I'm sort of interested in how Congress can actually maybe help uh, break uh, this impasse messaging wise or, or otherwise. Dove? Well, the election in Turkey takes place on June 18th, and most people think that uh, Erdogan will not do a thing till after that, as, as uh, Jim just pointed out. The problem on the hill, quite frankly, is uh, Bob Menendez. Uh, foreign military sales do not go through the Armed Services Committee. They right. go through foreign relations. And I was speaking to a very senior uh, Democrat the other day who basically said to me that Menendez is hard over. It's going to be very, very tough to get him on board. Now, right now, uh, because the Hungarians still haven't moved, and, some, and when I was over there, they were telling me late January, February. Now I'm starting to hear March. They are covering and essentially running interference for Erdogan. So they have to come on board first. Once that happens, and once Erdogan, if Erdogan is reelected, and certainly if he's not, uh, then I think it'll be up to the administration to uh, apply maximum pressure on uh, Menendez. Uh, and uh, my guess is that uh, that will happen and the deal will be struck. And Sweden and Finland will come in. But right now, I can't 
see them coming in before late June. Uh, but uh, Dove, I mean, isn't this also le- linked in part, or could this be linked to the Nagorno-Karabakh issue? Uh, Bob Menendez has been a strong supporter, not just of Greece, but also a critic of Turkey and a supporter of Armenia. Uh, and this is an instance where Baku and Ankara are really on the same page uh, and have been on a long time. And again, concerns that uh, both might move to sort of sever the southern part of Armenia um, to, to create a corridor be- between Nakhichevan uh, and Azerbaijan uh, proper. Um, do you see this as all sort of an interlinked whole as tensions rise in the Caucasus with this, you know, quote, environmental blockade of the Lachin Corridor? a blockade that the Russians are there to ensure doesn't happen, but have allowed to happen in part because Putin wants to punish Pashinyan. Well, also the Russians have allowed it to happen because they're distracted and they're not really in a position to do very much else than what they're already doing in Ukraine. Look, it, it this clearly is a factor in Mendes's, uh hostility to Turkey. There's no question about it. But at the end of the day, uh, if uh, the administration uh, turns to him and puts pressure on him. And look, then they can. There are all kinds of ways they can put pressure on a senator from New Jersey uh, and uh, say, look, you are keeping two critical allies out of NATO. Um, I think uh, he'll find a way to compartmentalize the two issues and go along. But he's not going to do it until, uh, as I say, late June, when it's clear who the next uh, president of Turkey is and whether Hungary has already come on board. Not before then. Um, Michael, your sense from members where they are uh, on this, given that Turkey has less traction today than it did uh, even five years ago. Well, look, uh, Dove stole my thunder here, right? Because I think Dove is exactly right, uh, that the issue really is uh, Senator Menendez holding up this weapon sale of F-16s to Turkey. I mean, I think there's overwhelming bipartisan support in the House and the Senate to get Sweden and Finland into NATO. Uh, so, and, and we have to still remember too, that Turkey still is, is, is a member of NATO, but you know, Menendez has made clear uh, that he is going to oppose the sale unless uh, the Turks improve their human rights record and you know, what he considers a ceasing uh, threatening US allies. I mean, he wants their uh, human rights record at, at home to improve, including releasing journalists and political oppositions uh, and begin to act like a trusted ally. So, um, and, and look, I think this is more illustrative of, of the fact that the foreign weapons sale system in this country is, is broken. Um, that, you know, one member of the House or Senate, you know, either the ranking or chairman of the Foreign Affairs or Foreign Relations Committee can hold up a sale because of the tiered review system. Now, the Biden administration can get around this by uh, going straight to formal notification and letting the statutory 30-day clock begin to run and forcing Congress to pass a, a joint resolution of disapproval, which I think um, that would not pass. Uh, and if it did, the administration would veto it. So the administration has cards to play here, but I think they do need to actively engage Menendez and, and, and so does the embassy too, to show that they are making progress on you know, the perceived human rights abuses and you know, releasing journalists uh, and other political oppositions you know, from, from, from detention. I just want to point out, I don't think there's anything perceived about it. Economists did a terrific story this week uh, on uh, uh, Erdogan's authoritarian nature and what he's doing uh, to the Turkish state uh, and to Turkish democracy, something that doesn't sit well with a lot of Turks. So everybody will be looking uh, uh, forward to the June elections. I just wanted to add that I agree with Michael and, and Dove about Menendez being the problem in terms of F-16s and security systems for Turkey. But I did want to really emphasize as well that my experience dealing with Turkey on the Hill, 
uh, having to go up to the Hill so many times over decades to try to convince staff as well as members why we need to have Turkey as an ally, the importance of Turkey, the bilateral relationship. You know, it is a problem that has been around for decades. It's even more serious now than it's been. Uh, and so we really should make sure that everyone knows that when we deal with Turkey on the Hill, it's not necessarily just one individual. There's a deep anti-Turkey uh, core to the Hill, and it's been there for many years. Uh, Patrick, uh, let me ask you a little bit uh, um, and focus on the Asia Pacific. Obviously, uh, a lot going on. China's on a charm offensive. Uh, we've uh, discussed that uh, in trying to win people back. Um, the death toll, I think it's extraordinary that Beijing is being somewhat more honest uh, with uh, casualty rates, although I suspect that the number is probably higher than 60,000. I mean, we went from like something like 37, I think was the number you used last week, <laughs> all the way up to 60,000 where it's, I think, hovered. Um, and uh, but, but it's beginning to pay off. Anthony Albanese, the uh, Australian prime minister, saying, hey, it's, it's about time for us to re renew uh, trade links, uh, a little bit softer language coming from other places as well. Hey, let's give, and, and, and that's empowered folks in the United States uh, to say, hey, you know, let's, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a lot of jobs riding on this, you know, the economy, we should really be getting back to doing trade with China. What's the line? From, from your standpoint, is the Chinese charm offensive actually working? And is Australia's stance to China changing right as we prepare? Uh, Dove uh, had a great piece uh, on uh, AUKUS uh, that uh, The Hill ran uh, today, uh, which is um, who should build uh, Australia's submarines? The US doesn't have uh, the workers. And again, uh, that uh, has been a big challenge. We barely have enough of the qualified workforce to build our own submarines. Sort of more broadly, is the charm offensive paying off? And is that actually allowing some countries, uh, you know, could could Australia reconsider AUKUS, uh, for example, uh, at, at the end of the day, in the wake of that saying, hey, look, mining interests, wine, beef, other things, maybe we need a little bit of a softer line. Maybe the Chinese are not that bad after all. Well, um, we saw at Davos this week, um, the outgoing vice premier, uh, Lu He, talking about China's back. And he's really trying to cast a, a new economic narrative for China. So amid the COVID disaster that China's in right now, um, which is the centerpiece of their real policy concerns, how do they get through this winter when they've just unilaterally reversed the zero COVID policies without a phase plan, say like Singapore, which had four phases, um, and and the death count, the casualty count, yes, they went from 37 to 600 to 60,000, but models show that it's more likely 600,000 uh, dead since uh, early December when they lifted the zero COVID. So uh, yeah, they become more transparent. Well, not really. Um, they've just uh, they they realized that 37 was too few uh, to be credible, um, and that's okay for them. They, they they're not here about the truth. They're here about managing and manipulating the narrative. Um, we see this from Ambassador Fang, who's the incoming Chinese ambassador to Washington. Um, and he's you know, talking about a similar lines. Let's get back to trade and let's focus on the economics. But in fact, um, really, uh, the, the national goal here is get through this COVID winter um, and get the economy back on track. So it grew at 2.2% in 2020, 8% in 2021, 3% last year. They're hoping that it reaches 5% or more this year. And uh, right now, estimates vary from you know four to 
5.5. Who knows? Uh, it's too early to say, but that's that's what their real focus is. And they are getting some traction in Canberra. They're getting traction in Europe. And, and Wang Yi will be going to the Munich Security Conference and in, in Brussels and the talk to the EU next month. Um, and so you're going to hear more of this, uh, as we will from their incoming ambassador about trade. And, and Secretary Blinken will be going to China uh, after the Lunar New Year holiday um, to talk about uh, the guardrails that, that the administration is trying to build with China. China's been pushing back, saying, no, we don't want guardrails. We want guidelines. We want to talk about the principles of our relationship. But they really want to get back to some trade as well. And so, yes, this is getting some traction at a time when all economies around the world are hoping to uh, avoid recession and start to grow. Um, I, and I should uh, wish everybody a very happy uh, Lunar uh, New Year uh, that, if I'm not mistaken, falls on Sunday, right? The 22nd. It starts, uh, yes. I'm... And uh, yeah, so they'll be off for a whole week uh, in China as a result. Uh, and, and across uh, much of Asia as well. And Patrick, let me ask you uh, also, uh, at the same time that China, uh, right in the outgoing ambassador wrote, I think, in the Washington Post, uh, you know, what a great time he had in America and how great a people America Americans are and what a great time he had here, even if he, he was engaging in some pretty first class wolf warrior uh, diplomacy. So on the one hand, there's a charm offensive. On the other one, uh, China is trying to portray itself as get, being somehow tough on Russia. Um, you know, uh, toward uh, the end of last year, Xi Jinping uh, calling on Vladimir Putin to explain his war aims uh, and what he's trying to achieve. I think Dmitry Medvedev uh, became involved in this as an emissary. Uh, how much of this is messaging uh, and how much of this is actual Chinese consternation? Or is it, you know, actually a little bit of both? Uh, right, posture yourself well while at the same time recognizing, hey, I need all these countries that are sanctioning him and they're mad at me because of him. Walk us through the more sophisticated game Xi Jinping and the leadership are trying to play here. Sure. I mean, in fairness to China, they're not the cause of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and so they've been trying to react to what their uh, no limits friend has done, uh, even if they had an inkling of what he was going to do ahead of time, according to intelligence. Um, but they are trying to play it uh, both ways here, uh, looking like they're trying to restrain Russia uh, and move them to peace. But in fact, they're doing very little, at least on the surface, anything, everything that can be seen. So all of this is speculation about whether they're actually being effective at arm twisting behind the scenes. I don't think so. I think right now, um, you know, my judgment would be they, they don't mind a protracted conflict provided it doesn't escalate vertically or horizontally, uh, provided it doesn't go to the nuclear level or you know, become a NATO Russian larger conflict, um, you know, and, and that because it doesn't seem to be escalating to either of those, um, they're happy. They, they get benefits from uh, the right. uh, the blood oil of Russia. Um, they get benefits from having this, uh, you know, this sway. And, and meanwhile, Americans are focused on the transatlantic. And that's that's not all bad from a Chinese perspective. So I only think the arm twisting has gone on when uh, Putin started to talk recklessly on the nuclear level. He's done it again this past week. And Medvedev is part of that propaganda, which is, oh, if we go down, you know, we're going to use nukes. I think there, um, actually, China probably, they, they may not agree with the nuclear issue, but they do not want Putin to go down. They do not want Russia to fail. Um, so we are on opposite sides of, of the Ukraine war with Russia from China. Uh, that's the reality. And so any kind of papering over they're doing of uh, we're restraining Russia, I would take it with a big grain of salt. 
Uh, indeed. Uh, very uh, quickly, we'll talk about the uh, chairman uh, sweepstakes uh, last week. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, Washington Post and other papers writing about uh, the horse race uh, between uh, Air Force uh, Chief CQ Brown uh, and Marine Corps Commandant uh, David Berger and, and who should be both uh, commanded in the Pacific for their respective services and who should succeed. Uh, Mark Milley is chairman, but we've got time uh, on that uh, particular uh, issue, even if it looked like CQ Brown uh, you know, is in the lead or has been in the lead. Clearly, um, you know, it, it, it may be a horse race as it as it sometimes is in Washington. Uh, Dove, uh, wrap us up real quick. Uh, Bibi Netanyahu, uh, one of the uh, things that Israel has prided itself on is being a constitutional democracy and has put former prime ministers and presidents in jail. Um, uh, and now, Bibi not being particularly comfortable with the Supreme Court and its authority uh, as the last word of the law of the land. Talk to us about what this means uh, for Israel, Israeli democracy. You mentioned the, the notion of a third antifada. Um, a lot of the Abraham Accord nations are getting increasingly uncomfortable with the posture of this new administration. Well, uh, you mentioned former uh, officials going to jail. Well, the, the current crisis actually is of a current nominee for a ministership. He's Indeed. actually right now a minister, Mr. Derry, Rabbi Derry, to be perfectly clear about this, uh, is a former jailbird. And he was uh, convicted of tax fraud just some months ago. And uh, they have put him in a ministry. Uh, and he's eventually supposed to become minister of finance, this tax fraud criminal. Uh, the Supreme Court has ruled he cannot be a senior minister. They've given uh, Netanyahu what's called reasonable time to get the guy out. Netanyahu is being threatened by uh, Derry's party, the uh, Shas party, that uh, they will pull out of the government if uh, Derry does not get a senior post. He already turned down Speaker of the Parliament. He wants a senior post. Netanyahu is panicking because if the uh, Shas party pulls out, he loses his majority. If he loses his majority, he could go to jail. Uh, and so uh, apparently uh, the Supreme Court is putting out that if Derry sits at the major cabinet meeting on Sunday, Netanyahu will be held in contempt of court. So you've got a major crisis there before you even get to Abraham Accords and illegal settlements and intifadas and all of that. By the way, the defense minister just said that a, an illegal settlement uh, has to be torn down, which goes against what uh, Netanyahu promised his right-wing supporters. And on to top it all off, there's going to be another major demonstration against the government's policies. Uh, the last one had 80,000 people. They say they're going to have a lot more, not just in Tel Aviv, but in uh, Beersheba, other cities. This country is chaotic. And uh, clearly the Arabs are looking at this. Uh, the Jordanians are furious about uh, Minister right. Veers going up to the Temple Mount or uh, what they which they don't even call the Temple Mount. They call it the Haram. Uh, right. And so you've got crises right and left. And uh, that is a lot of what Jake Sullivan presumably was talking about to Netanyahu. Netanyahu uh, really believes he can maneuver the United States. I think this time he can't. Uh, very briefly, anybody want to touch this? Um, there is a humanitarian crisis that's happening in Nagorno-Karabakh. Obviously, the Lachin Corridor is closed. Well, I think the key here is, is what Russia does. The United States is distracted, but so is Russia. And that's why uh, you have this threat of a cutoff in the South. 
um, we tend to react rather than to act uh, in anticipation. And so if there's some kind of crisis like that, we may react. But again, um, we are distracted uh, just almost as much as Russia is. And that poses a major problem for that part of the world. Agree. Agree with Dove. Thanks very much, everybody. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you on. Have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.